0: Section 11 of Under Drake's Flag This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines Under Drake's Flag, A Tale of the Spanish Main by George Alfred Henty Chapter 10. Southward Ho Upon making inquiries, Ned Hearn found that Captain Drake had upon the return of his expedition, set aside the shares of the prize money of Gerald Summers, himself, and the men who were lost in the wreck of the prize, in hopes that they would some day return to claim them. Upon the evidence given by Gerald and himself of the death of the others, their shares were paid, by the bankers at Plymouth, who had charge of them, to their families, while Ned and Gerald received their portions owing to the great mortality which had taken place among the crews each of the lads received a sum of nearly a thousand pounds the total capture amounting to a value of over a million of money as boys they each received the half of a man's share the officers of course had received larger shares and the merchants who had lent money to get up the expedition gained large profits Ned thought at first of embarking his money in the purchase of a share in a trading vessel and of taking to that service, but hearing that Captain Drake intended to fit out another expedition, he decided to wait for that event and to make one more voyage to the Spanish main before determining on his future course. Having, therefore, his time on his hands, he accepted the invitation of the parents of his three boy friends, Tom Tracellis, Gerald Summers, and Reuben Gale. He was most warmly welcomed, for both Tom and Gerald declared that they owed their lives to him. He spent several weeks at each of their homes, and then returned to Plymouth, where he put himself into the hands of a retired master mariner to learn navigation and other matters connected with his profession, and occupied his spare time in studying the usual branches of a gentleman's education it was some months before captain francis returned from ireland but when he did so he at once began his preparations for his next voyage the expedition was to be on a larger scale than that in which he had formerly embarked for he had formed the resolve to sail around cape horn to coast along north to the spanish settlements upon the great ocean he had seen from the treetop in the isthmus of darien and then if all went well To sail still further north, double the northern coasts of America, and to find some short way by which English ships might reach the Pacific. These projects were, however, known to but few, as it was considered of the utmost importance to prevent them from being noised abroad, lest they might come to the ears of the Spaniards, and so put them on their guard. In spite of the great losses of men upon the former expedition, The number of volunteers who came forward directly captain drake's intention to sail again to the indies was known was greatly in excess of the requirements all however who had sailed upon the last voyage and were willing again to venture were enrolled and captain drake expressed a lively pleasure at meeting ned Hearne and gerald summers whom he had given up as lost The expenses of the expedition were defrayed partly from the funds of captain drake and his officers partly by money subscribed by merchants and others who took shares in the speculation these were termed adventurers ned embarked five hundred pounds of his prize money in the venture as did each of his three friends he was now nineteen and a broad strongly built young fellow His friends were all somewhat older, and all four were entered by Captain Francis's men, and ranked as gentlemen adventurers, and would therefore receive their full share of prize money. On the 12th of November, 1577, the fleet sailed out of Plymouth Sound, amid the salutes of the guns of the fort there. It consisted of five ships, the Pelican of 100 tons, the flagship, commanded by Captain General Francis Drake, the Elizabeth, eighty tons, Captain John Winter, the Marigold, a bark of thirty tons, Captain John Thomas, the Swan, a flyboat of fifty tons, Captain John Chester, and the Christopher, a pinnace of fifteen tons, Captain Thomas More. The voyage began unfortunately, for meeting a headwind they were forced to put into Falmouth, where a tempest ill-treated them sorely some of the ships had to cut away their masts and the whole were obliged to put back into Plymouth to refit entering the harbour in a very different state to that in which they had left it a fortnight before every exertion was made and after a few days delay the fleet again set sail they carried an abundance of stores of all kinds together with large quantities of fancy articles as presents for the savage people whom they might meet in their voyaging. The second start was more prosperous than the first, and, after touching at various points on the west coast of Africa, they shaped their way to the mouth of the La Plata, sailing through the Cape de Verde Islands, where their appearance caused no slight consternation among the Portuguese. However, as they had more important objects in view, they did not stop to molest any of the principal towns only landing at quiet bays to procure a fresh supply of water and to obtain fruits and vegetables which in those days when ships only carried salt provisions were absolutely necessary to preserve the crews in health. all were charmed with the beauty and fertility of these islands which were veritable gardens of tropical fruits and they left these seas with regret the fleet reached the la plata in safety but made no long stay there for the extreme shallowness of the water and the frequency and abundance of the shoals in the river made the admiral fear for the safety of his ships, and accordingly, after a few days' rest, the anchors were weighed and the fleet proceeded down the coast. For some time they sailed without adventure, save that once or twice, in the storms they encountered, one or other of the ships were separated from the rest. After several weeks' sailing, they put into the bay of St. Julian, on the coast of Patagonia. Here the crews landed to obtain water. Soon the natives came down to meet them. These were tall, active men, but yet far from being the giants which the Spaniards had represented them, few of them being taller than a tall Englishman. They were dressed in the scantiest clothing, the men wearing a short apron made of skin, with another skin as a mantle over one shoulder, the women wearing a kind of petticoat made of soft skin, The men carried bows and arrows and spears and were painted strangely one half the head and body being painted white the other black their demeanour was perfectly friendly and captain drake fearing no harm walked some distance inland and many of those not engaged in getting water into the boats also strolled away from the shore among those who rambled farthest were ned and tom tersales together with another gentleman adventurer named arbuckle When they left Captain Francis, the armorer, who had brought a bow on shore with him, was showing the natives how much farther our English bow could carry than the native weapon. Wondering what the country was like beyond the hills, the little party ascended the slope. Just as they reached the top, they heard a shout. Looking back, they saw that all was confusion. The string of the armorer's bow had snapped, and the natives, knowing nothing of guns, believed that the party were now unarmed as the armorer was restringing his bow one of the natives shot an arrow at him and he fell mortally wounded one standing near now raised his arquebus but before he could fire he too was pierced by two arrows and fell dead the admiral himself caught up the arquebus and shot the man who had first fired the little party on the hill had been struck with amazement and consternation at the sudden outburst and were recalled to a sense of their danger by the whiz of an arrow, which struck Master Arbuckle in the heart, and at the same moment a dozen of the savages made their appearance from among the trees below them. Seeing the deadliness of their aim, and that he and Tom would be shot down at once, before they could get to close quarters, Ned turned to fly. "'Quick, Tom, for your life!' Fortunately they stood on the very top of the ascent, so that a single bound backwards took them out of sight and range of their enemies. There was a wood a few hundred miles inland, apparently of great extent, and towards this the lads ran at the top of their speed. The savages had to climb the hill, and when they reached its crest the fugitives were out of bowshot range. A yell broke from them as they saw the lads, but these had made the best use of their time, and reached the wood some two hundred yards ahead of their pursuers. Ned dashed into the undergrowth and tore his way through it, Tom close at his heels. Sometimes they came to open spaces, and here each time Ned changed the direction of their flight, choosing spots where they could take to the underwood without showing any sign, such as broken boughs, of their entrance. After an hour's running, the yells and shouts which had at first seemed close behind gradually lessened and were now but faintly heard then utterly exhausted the lads threw themselves on the ground in a few minutes however ned rose again come tom he said we must keep on these fellows will trace us with the sagacity of dogs but clever as they may be it takes time to follow a track we must keep on now when it gets dark which will be in another hour or so they will be able to follow us no longer and then we can take it easily Do as you think best, Ned. You are accustomed to this kind of thing. Without another word they started off at a run again, keeping as nearly as they could a straight course, for Ned's experience in forest life enabled him to do this, when one unused to woodcraft would have lost all idea of direction. The fact, however, that the mosses grew on the side of the trees looking east, was guide enough for him, for he knew that the warm breezes from the sea would attract them, while the colder inland winds would have an opposite effect. Just as it was getting dark, they emerged from the wood, and could see, stretching far before them, an undulating and almost treeless country. Fortunately, there has been no rain for some time, and the ground is as hard as iron, Ned said. On the damp soil under the trees they will track our steps, but we shall leave no marks here, and in the morning, when they trace us to this spot, they will be at fault." So saying, he struck off across the country. For some hours they walked, the moon being high and enabling them to make their way without difficulty. At last they came upon a clump of bushes, and here Ned proposed a halt. Tom was perfectly ready, for they had now walked and run for many hours, and both were thoroughly fatigued. For after so long a voyage, in a small ship, they were out of condition for a long journey on foot. THE FIRST THING TO DO IS LIGHT A FIRE, NED SAID, FOR IT IS BITTERLY COLD. BUT HOW DO YOU MEAN TO LIGHT IT? I HAVE FLINT AND STEEL IN MY pouch," NED SAID, AND A FLASK OF POWDER, FOR PRIMING MY PISTOLS, IN EACH SASH HERE. IT IS A PITY, INDEED, WE DID NOT PUT OUR PISTOLS INTO OUR BELTS WHEN WE CAME ASHORE. BUT EVEN IF I HAD NOT HAD THE FLINT AND STEEL, I COULD HAVE MADE A FIRE BY RUBBING TWO DEAD STICKS TOGETHER. YOU FORGET I HAVE LIVED AMONG SAVAGES FOR A YEAR. "'You don't think that it is dangerous to light a fire?' "'Not in the least. It was dark when we left the wood, and they must have halted in our track, far back among the trees, to follow it up by daylight. Besides, we have walked five hours since then, and must be twenty miles away, and we have crossed five or six hills. Find a few dead sticks, and I will pull a handful or two of dried grass. We will soon have a fire.' Ned made a little pile of dried grass, scooped out a slight depression at the top, and placed a dead leaf in it. On this he poured a few grains of gunpowder, added a few blades of dried grass, and then set to work with his flint and steel. After a blow or two, a spark fell into the powder. It blazed up, igniting the blades of grass and the leaf, and in a minute the little pile was in a blaze. Dried twigs and then larger sticks were added, "'and soon a bright fire burned up. "'Throw on some of the green bush,' Ned said. "'We do not want a blaze, "'for although we have thrown out the fellows in pursuit of us, "'there may be others about.' "'And now, Ned,' Tom said, "'after sitting for some time gazing into the red fire, "'what on earth are we to do next?' "'That is a question more easily asked than answered,' "'Ned said cheerfully. "'We have saved our skins for the present.' "'Now we have got to think out what is the best course to pursue.' "'I don't see any way to get back to the ship,' Tom said, after a long pause. "'Do you?' "'No,' Ned replied. "'I don't, Tom. "'These savages know they have cut us off and will be on the watch, you may be sure. "'They shoot so straight with those little bows and arrows of theirs "'that we should be killed without the least chance of ever getting to close quarters.' Besides, the Admiral will doubtless believe that we have been slain, and will sail away. We may be sure that he beat off the fellows who were attacking him, but they will all take to the woods, and he would never be able to get any distance among the trees. Besides, he would give up all hope of finding us there. As to our getting back through the wood, swarming with savages, it seems to me hopeless. Then, whatever is to become of us? Tom asked hopelessly. "'Well, the lookout is not bright,' Ned said thoughtfully, "'but there is a chance for us. "'We may keep ourselves by killing wild animals, "'and by pushing inland we may come upon some people less treacherous and bloody "'than those savages by the seashore. "'If so, we might hunt and live with them.' "'Tom groaned. "'I am not sure that I would not rather be killed at once "'than go on living like a savage.' "'The life is not such a bad one,' Ned said. "'I tried at once.' and although the negroes and indians of puerto rico were certainly a very different people to these savages still the life led on these great plains and hills abounding with game is more lively than being cooped up in wood as i was then besides i don't mean that we should be here always i propose that we try and cross the continent it is not so very wide here and we are nearly in a line with lima the admiral means to go on there and expects a rich booty He may be months before he gets round the horn, and if we could manage to be there when he arrives, we should be rescued. If not, and I own that I have not much hope of it, we could at least go down to Lima some time or other. I can talk Spanish now very fairly, and we shall have such a lot of adventures to tell that, even if they do not take us for Spanish sailors, as we can try to feign, they will not be likely to put us to death. They would do so if we were taken in arms as buccaneers, but, coming in peaceably, we might be kindly treated. At any rate, if we get on well with the Indians, we shall have the choice of making, some day or other, for the Spanish settlements on the west coast. But that is all in the distance. The first thing will be to get our living somehow, the second to get further inland, the third to make friends with the first band of natives we meet, and now the best thing to do is to get off to sleep i shall not be many minutes i can tell you strange as was the situation and many the perils that threatened them both were in a few minutes fast asleep the sun was rising above the hills when with a start they awoke and at once sprang to their feet and instinctively looked round in search of approaching danger all was however quiet some herds of deer grazed in the distance but no other living creature was visible Then they turned their eyes upon each other and burst into a simultaneous shout of laughter. Their clothes were torn literally into rags by the bushes through which they had forced their way, while their faces were scratched and stained with blood from the same cause. "'The first thing to be done,' Ned said, when the laugh was over, "'is to look for a couple of long springy saplings, and to make bows and arrows. "'Of course they will not carry far, but we might knock down any small game we come across.' Both lads were good shots with a bow, for in those days, although firearms were coming in, all Englishmen were still trained in the use of the bow. But what about strings? Tom asked. I will cut four thin strips from my belt, Ned said. Each pair tied together will make a string for a five-foot bow, and will be fully strong enough for any weapon we shall be able to make. After an hour's walk, they came to a small grove of trees growing in a hollow these were of several species and trying the branches they found one kind which was at once strong and flexible with their hangers or short swords they cut down a small sapling of some four inches in diameter split it up haired each half down and manufactured two bows which were rough indeed but sufficiently strong to send an arrow a considerable distance then they made each a dozen shafts pointed and notched them Without feathers or metal points, these would not fly straight to any distance, but they had no thought of long-range shooting. Now, Ned said, we will go back to that bare space of rock we passed a hundred yards back. There were dozens of little lizards running about there. It will be hard if we cannot knock some over. Are they good to eat? Tom asked. I have no doubt they are, Ned said. As a rule, everything is more or less good to eat some things may be nicer than others but hardly anything is poisonous i have eaten snakes over and over again and very good they are i have been keeping a lookout for them ever since we started this morning when they reached the rock the lizards all darted off to their cracks and crevices but ned and tom lay down with their bows bent and arrows in place and waited quietly ere long the lizards popped up their heads again and began to move about and the lads now let fly their arrows. Sometimes they hit, sometimes missed, and each shot was followed by the disappearance of the lizards, but with patience they found by the end of an hour that they had shot a dozen, which was sufficient for an ample meal for them. "'How will you cook them, Ned? Skin them as if they were eels, and then roast them on a stick.' "'I am more thirsty than hungry,' Tom said. "'Yes, and from the look of the country, water must be scarce. "'However, as long as we can shoot lizards and birds, we can drink their blood.' "'The fire was soon lighted, and the lizards cooked. "'They tasted like little birds, their flesh being tender and sweet. "'Now we had better be proceeding,' Ned said, when they had finished their meal. "'We have an unknown country to explore, and if we ever get across, "'we shall have materials for yarns for the rest of our lives.' well ned i must say you are a capital fellow to get into a scrape with you got gerald and me out of one and if anyone could get through this i am sure you could do so gerald told me that he always relied upon you and found you always right you may be sure that i will do the same so i appoint you captain-general of this expedition and promise to obey all orders unquestioningly well my first order is ned said laughing that we each make a good pike. The wood we made our bows from will do capitally, and we can harden the points in the fire. We may meet some wild beasts, and a good strong six-foot pike would be better than our swords. Two hours' work completed the new weapons, and with their bows slung at their backs, and using their pikes as walking staves, they again set out on their journey across the continent. End of chapter 10 Recording by Dion John's, Salt Lake City, Utah.